Hello and welcome to Who Books That with Harrison Greenbaum. I'm your host, Harrison Greenbaum, and the show, as always, is presented by the International Brotherhood of Magician, uh, Magicians. A huge thanks to all of uh, everybody involved in the organization. Um, if you'd like to sign up for the International Brotherhood of Magicians, go to magician.org slash join dash the dash IBM slash join. If you check out your linking ring and you pull it over, there's a there's a little poster of this whole show. It features the first 29 guests. We are in episode 31. We are here every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. if you're on the West Coast. Next week is an off week, but then the week following will be Paul Keeve who is an incredible British magician who's responsible for the magic in many Broadway and West End productions, such as Ghost, uh, the Harry Potter play, uh, Matilda. He's also responsible for the Harry Potter movie magic. Uh, so we're very excited to talk to him. And of course, this episode is available as a podcast, whobooksthat.com, if you'd like to download this as a podcast. And if you're listening as a podcast and you don't know that there's a video version of this, well, you're in luck. Go to whobooksthat.com. You can watch video versions uh, if you ever hear me referencing a photograph and wondering why I'm referencing visual things like photos and videos, it's because there's a video component. So you can watch your favorite podcast as a video live stream interview. So make sure you do that. There's a lot of great content. Um, and it's always nice to see the faces. Um, you can follow me at Harrison Comedy. That's on Twitter and Instagram at Harrison Comedy. And before we introduce our first guest, a huge Hello and welcome to everybody who is already posting. Keep those comments coming. I love to work those into the show. If you have any questions, we'll try to get to as many as we can. We have Lewis Gordon in Rochester, New York. Clark is saying, hi, Harrison. Hi, back to you, Clark. We have Martin, who's in Lackawanna, New York. Scott Wells saying, hello, partner. He's actually business partners with uh, our main guest. Um, that You'll see that as part of uh, his biography. We have Mark Fitzgerald in... Uh, uh, in Winter Garden, Florida. A lot of people in Florida go freeze Florida, Kissimmee, Florida. So thank you guys so much for tuning in. But let's kick this thing off. Wow, we have an incredible guest for episode 31. He is a phenomenal magician. Uh, he was uh, born in England, moved to South Africa, ended up in Australia, swung by America. He's been all over the place. He's been a nationally touring magician for decades. He's one of the most prominent magical thinkers, one of the top magic consultants, and uh, one of the best mentalists uh, on the planet. We're so excited to have him. And by we, I mean me, because it's just me. But guys, make some noise. Get excited from your home or apartment. It's the one and only Banachek, everybody. How you doing, sir? I am doing good. I hope I can keep up with your energy. <laughs> I, I definitely drank some caffeine right before we started, and it's kicking in right at this moment. Good, good. Good to see you, Harrison. Good to see you too. Uh, for those who don't know where you are, you are, I believe, in a theater right now in Branson, Missouri. Uh, and yeah. judging on the chandelier, it's a, you're in a community theater version of Phantom of the Opera? Uh, it could well be that. It's about a 1,200-seat theater, and it's here in Branson, Missouri. It's called the Branson Star Theater. Um, I've played on this stage a few times since I've been here. We are usually in the smaller room, which is about 250 seats, which is right across the hall. But there, there's voodoo going on in there right now. Um, <laughs> and what I mean by voodoo, it's not the voodoo we would think of. It's a band, and I think it's a tribute to Santana. I should know this, but I don't because I haven't seen the show yet. That's amazing. And I alluded to your biography. You were born in England. Yeah. Uh, ended up in South Africa. You eventually went to Australia. You had a stepfather who was Scottish. You went to America. Uh, do you regret not living in Ireland? Because then you would have had every accent imaginable. 
So let me tell you something interesting, right? So um, I always thought I was British. So my mom basically abandoned me in South Africa when I was nine. I raised my two brothers there. And then from there, I went from uh, South Africa to Australia to find my biological dad who had left when I was a year old. But me and my mom, you know, we've patched things up through the years. And uh, I went to go visit my mom and she had moved to Ireland. And I went to go see my mom. I said, mom, what do you do in Ireland? She called, she said, you get. I said, what, what did I do now? She said, you're Irish. I'm like, Nobody ever freaking told me I was Irish. My whole <laughs> life, I thought I was English. Like nobody ever said, "Hey, you're Irish," you know? Yeah. So I, you, I am you, Irish. So you have every accent. That's incredible. I, I don't have the Irish accent. No. When I go back <laughs> to England, it tends to come out. People here in the U.S. think it's a uh, a Boston accent because it's sort of this conglomeration <laughs> of English, South African, mostly American, a lot of Texan because I was in Texas for a long time. So yeah, I've got I've got all this thing. You know, I I, I do say Southern and you all. Sometimes it'll be Ewan, which is Pennsylvania. So with my dyslexia, it really gets my accent gets messed up really really bad. Yeah, you just gotta confuse them and say y'all are hella wicked, and then they have no idea where you're exactly. from. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I thought was so interested in reading up about your biography, because we're on episode 31, and most magicians have a story that goes like this. They were young, they saw their first magician, and they were immediately in love. That inspired them. They said, I want to spend my the rest of my life doing magic. I believe you had a, 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 not, a very opposite experience. Well, yes and no. You know, I'm starting to realize that it was still different because I started out with mentalism, never started out with magic, didn't even know there was such a subcategory of magic called mentalism. I just knew there were people that con people using tricks. And that's why I started creating. But we can move forward to that later on. But I started thinking, like, well, how did I get interested in magic? And I remember... Um, it was like middle school or something even below that, where I had seen a magician that had come to the school and he had an egg, you know, and he showed, uh, he actually showed, oh, you put the silk in the egg, but then he peeled it off. And I thought, that's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. I went home, I got myself an egg, I hollered it out and I was doing the silk thing and everything else. And I remember going back to school uh, the, uh, the next Monday because it was on the weekend. And he was doing the, uh, the the thing with the blackboard where it's written on the blackboard, you know, and you, you sneak a peek with a blindfold as you say, erase that, right? Um, and they were all saying that, oh, you know, even the teacher was saying, oh, he must have been able to hear the chalk and the way it was being written. And I was like, I don't think so. I think he just looked, you know. And But I always thought I hadn't been that interested in magic. And that, oh, that's actually after Project Alpha years later. Yeah, that picture right there. But um. I, I I started thinking about it and then I realized, right? I went to go see my mom the same time that I she called me a git, right? I saw her and there was a daffodil on the table. She said, you know what we call those? We call those Stephen's magic flowers. And because my actual biological name was Stephen Shaw, it's now legally changed to just Banachek, you know, only Banachek. So, but um I said, well, why do you call them that? She said, because when you were a kid, you thought they were so magical because in the day they would be open at night, they would close up and then they would open up again in the morning. And you thought that was the most magical thing. And that got me to thinking. And then I remembered my grandfather when I was a little kid. So I had to be about six, five, four, somewhere in that whole age group right there, right? He used to take me, he'd say he was going to take me for a walk, but he would take me to the bar and he would make me sit on the bench outside while he went in and got drunk. But the good thing about my grandpa is he showed me a bunch of tricks. Now, they were stupid little tricks. Like he would put a little box in front of me and have it covered with a cloth. And he'd say, close your eyes and concentrate on one of these things, either milk, a glass of water, a glass of orange juice, or a hot tea. 
I'd go close my eyes and you got to repeat it five times. I go, orange juice, orange juice, orange juice, orange juice, orange juice. Open your eyes, take off the cloth. The orange juice would be in there. Now, of course, he had them all sitting around the corner. And when my eyes are closed, you just put it in. But I don't <laughs> know if that's what got me inspired. I know I never really thought about it through the years, but maybe there were all these little breadcrumbs throughout my life that got me to that point. I do know that I always saw, thought outside the box. From when I was a little kid up, I played soccer. And I remember it wasn't just good enough for me to be faster and get around people, but I had to find trick ways to get around them, ways to move the ball so it would go between their legs and just all these different ways. Wow, you even have that. My goodness. <laughs> um, so that's pretty high school. Yeah, where I, where I played soccer. So, But I would find all these trick ways of doing different things. Um, and, and I've always been that way. Even when I was in, in the school, I used to get in trouble because, well, I am dyslexic. So I would come out with different out-of-the-box ways of thinking and coming to the same math problem as somebody else. And the teacher said, no, we don't do it that way. And I could never understand it. It would always be like, but that's how I do it. And I've got the right answer and it works. Why can't I do it that way? I and mean, I get in trouble for that all the time. We had a sociology teacher in high school who gave, uh, divided us into four groups. And I'll never forget this. And it kind of stunted my, my wanting to participate in things. But he gave us all of each group a flower and a number. And he said, by the next two weeks, I want you to try to find out what the flower numbers are, the, the other groups. And other groups, don't tell them what yours are. So don't tell anybody what yours, yours is, but find out what theirs is. I pulled my group together. I said, look, you know, and it's all about societies. And I said, our society is going to be one that plunders and kills. It doesn't mean that's what we are or who we are, right? But <laughs> that's the societies like with the Romans, you know, and the Vikings and all that. I said, and I don't see any way of us finding out what those people are unless we play this role. I want you to go to that group. I want you to go to that group. You go to that group, you know, and what you're going to do is you're going to tell them, you're going to find the weakest link in that group. And you're going to tell them, look, um, I'll tell you what we are if you tell us what you are, but don't tell anybody I told you, okay? And by the end of the day, we knew what every group was and nobody knew what we were because we didn't, we didn't tell them the <laughs> truth. The next week we came back, he says, you know, who knows what any of the other groups are? I said, we do. You know, he says, well, how many? I said, all of them. He went, what? Nobody's ever done that. I said, yeah. <laughs> I told him what they all were. He, started, he said, how did you find out? And I told him. He started screaming and yelling at me that I had ruined his sociology experiment. I said, but I played within your rules. You, you didn't give us these guidelines, you know? And we found out he gave my whole group Fs. He gave everybody else As in the classroom and the other groups. So, of course, my group was furious with me as well for making the suggestion that got us the answers. So, yeah, always thought outside the box. But I'm sorry, I went off on a tangent. I apologize. No, no, that, that's an amazing story. Um, and that goes into sort of the the sort of the milieu of, being, of, of cons and scams that uh, – pervades the story of, of, of using your wits to outwit other people. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was in South Africa, um, uh, it, it was, it, I remember there was a, um, there's a guy by the name of Yuri Geller, right? And Yuri Geller had conquered the world in the area of, of psychics because he told everybody he could bend metal with his mind. He was studying at Stanford Research Institute and he, he was using that as sort of an endorsement to say, they endorsed me, they said it was real, which is not exactly true either. But all the adults that I knew, my mom had abandoned me, um, my stepdad was an alcoholic, we hardly ever saw him, you know, and uh, I, I, all the adults believed that he was genuine that I knew, and I listened to him on the radio, and he said that if you go get a little needle, uh, not a needle, he said if you get a piece of metal 
and you bring it to the radio, you can get it to bend too. So I hunted around the house and I found a, a pin that my mom had left in the sewing kit that she had. And I brought it to the radio and I concentrated on it. And man, I just wanted to, I mean, why wouldn't I want to believe I had superhuman powers, right? Especially with the environment that I was living in at the time. I wanted something bigger, something better, you know, than, than just this. So I believed it had been on a micro level, not on a macro level, but on a micro, so tiny you could barely see it. Man, that thing had bent for me. And it wasn't until after I came to the United States, uh, 1976, around 77, somewhere 76, 77, I picked up a book by James the Amazing Randy. And it was called The Magic of Yuri Geller, or now The Truth of Yuri Geller, or it's the other way around. I can't remember which is which. But the truth, as Randy said, was that Geller was nothing more than a magician posing as a psychic. And as I read the book, I became upset, sort of with myself. Because I learned a valuable lesson. Just because people are in a position of power, meaning the adults around me, just because they tell you something, don't always take it at face value. Do your own research, your own background, and find out. But in that book, there was a method to bend a nail and, and a key. Um, and I had always heard that when you saw Geller, and I keep in mind in South Africa, it was Springbok Radio, we didn't have TVs at the time. In fact, the time that I saw him, I was getting ready to leave there at that time. Um, they had TVs in the stores, but they did not have a station. So they were playing all these Popeye uh, videos on them all the time. Uh, but um, so I started creating methods where you could actually see metal bending, thinking this is what you would see if you saw Geller. And it wasn't until years later uh, when I was fooling scientists into believing I was a genuine psychic, and we'll, we, we'll, we'll come into that in a second, that um, I saw Gala, and that wasn't the case. It was more <laughs> like picking up the nails and the keys, yes. Uh, he did optical bends, but the forks and stuff and the, and, the, and the spoons, he would more than likely just pick them up, and I could see him putting the bend into it, and then he'd bring a bunch of kids on stage before that, put your hands over mine, he'd take his hand away, and it would be bent. So many of my bends, and you know, it sounds egotistical, were actually superior to what Geller were doing. Of course, everybody believed in Geller, you know, in that room. Because I remember watching him, and he was doing the back blackboard thing, but he would have a he'd have a poster right here on it right next to his side. Okay. And I'll try to describe some people who aren't watching the video actually will be able to understand. So he's holding it in his left and his right hand to his left side, and he's putting his head down. He said, I'm going to duck down so I can't see behind me, draw something on the blackboard. And as they're drawing, he slowly said, now make sure I can't see. And he's slowly turning to his left and his head going further and further down. And a little crack appears between him and the board. And you can, I can tell that he's just looking at the board, right? Literally looking <laughs> at it. And then come, comes back slowly. I'm like, why don't any of these people see this? And it's because they were all believers. They didn't want to see it. They wanted to believe that these powers are absolutely genuine. Now, back in the 19, 1970s and 80s, you've got to remember, like we always look at metal bending and stuff like that now. People go, oh, I'd never be fooled by that. But the culture was a very different environment at that time, very different. I mean, you had the Iron Curtain, which was Russia, right? And they had their psychics and they were putting out their psychics could do amazing things. So our government is seeing that and going, oh my goodness, right? If this is real, then maybe, you know, they can use that against us. So we need to do our research. And so they started getting in on it. You also had In Search Of, which was a number one TV program forever. You had people believing if you put tinfoils on your hats, aliens that were out there couldn't read your minds, right? We think of this as silly now, but keep in mind, 
These were the early days of this stuff. This stuff was really accepted into the mainstream. I mean, we have our own versions of that now when we talk about mediums and things like that. That's our version. We have higher tech versions of that. Uh, and we need higher tech versions to, for them to survive because that stuff won't fool anybody. But it was the beginning of those things right there. And the contention was... There's no evidence of ESP on a proper scientific controls because of lack of funding. And it was my contention that it had nothing to do with funding. It had to do with, and Mike Edwards, who was another kid that was with me on Project Alpha, um, it, it was our contention that it had nothing to do with funding, that it had to do um, with the fact that they were going in with a pro-biased opinion. In other words, they were believing in this phenomena, and as a result, they weren't researching it properly. And, uh, you know, I wrote Rand and said, if you ever need a kid to try to convince scientists that this stuff is real, um, I'm happy to do so. And uh, he invited me to come to his home. That happened at one point. He didn't ask to see me do anything, didn't, didn't, didn't show me anything. And I found out years later that it was because he wanted to find out my personality. He wanted to find out more about me. So if the opportunity ever came about, he could tell the scientists, hey, look, um, I, I didn't teach this kid. Now imagine if I had taught him what he could have done. Now I think back now and I go, you know what? If he had taught me, I probably would have thought as a magician. And because I didn't have any of those preconceived notions, I was able to think not as a magician, but more as a psychic and able to get away with more as a result and use the psychology of a psychic as opposed to necessarily the psychology of a magician. I don't know. I might be jumping on one of the stories that you want me to go into. So I'll stop at this point before I go into Project Alpha. <laughs> no, no, it's great. Um, Scott Wells says hi. I know uh, Scott and you have uh, put releases out. Um, he said, this is why Bad Check is a great guest. The host doesn't have to ask many questions. And I agree. You're a fantastic okay. storyteller. Um, and I love it. Um, we're, we're starting to get into Project Alpha. Um, and I guess uh, let's walk a little bit into how, how that gets started um, and what's sure. actually happening. Because basically, you're using uh, all sorts of techniques to convince these scientists that you have psychic powers. But uh, they're being helped by Randy at the same time. And there's no reason they, sh they should be fooled by these, right? Well, yes, no, there is reasons they should be fooled. Because again, like I said, think of the time, you know, and the climate at the time. Well, yes and no. Had they have followed Randy's, well, let's move back. Just right, that's what I, right? be, I should have said is if they had followed proper scientific protocol, they should have been able to catch you. They should have. Yes, they, they would have. Or they would have at least not caught us, but at least we wouldn't have not been able to do a thing. So I want to move back a little bit because this is an important point. Right. And it goes into this. So um, I uh, a, a friend of mine at Washington Hospital, I worked at Washington. I had three jobs when I was in high school just so I could have my own place to stay. And one of the jobs was working at a hospital. All right. One was a fry cook. One was a security job, which I was able to sleep on. I was allowed to, by the way. Um, so uh, but the hospital thing there, the girl brought me an article. It was an Associated Press article. And it said that uh, uh, Washington University, a man by the name of Professor Phillips was looking for psychics that could bend metal. Now, I'd already been doing this in high school to the point to where the kids had bring me all the silverware to bend. I got in trouble for that. They went to plastic silverware until I graduated. I figured a way to make the school bell by shorting the wires, make it go off early. But I kept telling the kids I was doing it psychically. Um, I got in trouble for that as well. I got in trouble for a lot of things back in those days because um, I was experimenting with all this stuff. But Randy had said, you know, the opportunity might come about. Well, the article said they were looking for these kids. So I wrote him a letter. I said, if you, you know, I, I can do this. And I was accepted. 
about a week or so later, I got a call from Randy saying, hey, there's this uh, guy in Washington University who's getting half a million dollars um, at Washington University by McDonnell Douglas, you know, the, the, the aircraft people. And he said, uh, and I said, wait, concentrate on the guy's name. Does it start with a P? And I'm getting like a second P. He said, how did you know this? I said, because I've already been accepted. I was going to write you a letter and let you know. And it was at that point that he told me about another kid by the name of Mike Edward, who had already been accepted and had written Randy and, uh, and you know, just for some pointers in that. And uh, Mike had suggested that it be called Project Alpha. He had it in, you know, he's, he doesn't even have it in his notes to show that. And uh, Mike had said to Randy, hey, look, um, you know, what, what, what about the Steve Shaw, you know, if, if, which is my, my biological name? You know, if he's not any good, I'm going to out him. And Randy said, okay, that's fair. I, I think something along those lines. And I said the same thing to Randy. I said, what do you know about Mike Edwards? You know, and he said, um, not, not a whole lot. I said, okay, I'll play it by ear. But when Mike and I met at the airport the first time, we knew right away we were going to hit it off. And there's some, some stories with those things. But going back to what you just said just a minute ago, um, Randy immediately wrote them a letter and there was 11 caveats on there of things that you should not let psychics do. Don't <laughs> let them work with more than one object at a time because they can use one to misdirect the other. Don't let more than one subject work at the same time. The list went on. When Mike and I showed up at the Mac lab the first time, they showed us that list. They laughed about their list and they said, this would make you guys so uncomfortable. There's no way you would ever be able to, you know, perform anything right. We wouldn't be able to perform anything because it would make us uncomfortable because we wouldn't be able to use any trickery, of course, you know, we didn't tell them that. And every time we would perform an, an experiment, we would let Randy know either via phone or either via letter. And Randy would write them a letter. Like for instance, one day they sat me down at a table and they put a, uh, a rotor over a bell jar, a glass rotor over, I mean, a glass uh, bell jar over a rotor, right? And they said, uh, which is like a little propeller thing on a, a nail. Uh, point. And they said, you know, make it move uh, if you can. I said, oh, I can do that. I never said no to anything. You know, Mike was more conservative because <laughs> he was a law student. I was a, just a bum kid working in a hospital and Long John Silver's in security, right? So I concentrate and it starts moving to the left. And I see Mike's face go, what the heck? You know, they said, can you make it move to the right to make sure it's not some sort of air currents? Concentrate and it moves to the right. Mike knocks me under the table, you know, and he says, hey, do you want to go get a drink? That was our code always for going to discuss something, you know, maybe a method on how to do something that Mike had come up with or I had come up with. And I knew what Mike wanted. I go, no, I'm OK. Thank you. And <laughs> he on my toe again. Let's go get a drink. I'm thirsty. You know, I said, OK, we get all the way down to the machines and Mike is there. And he says, um, how'd you do that? I said, Mike, you're not going to believe this. Sitting in here all this time. I've just found out I'm really psychic. He said, you son of a... <laughs> so I told him that Mike went in the room and he was doing the same thing. And they never realized, you know, that whenever I would come up with something or Mike would come, someone would go visit out there. And then shortly after the other one was able to do these things as well. So uh, now a lot of people say we took money from the scientists. No, we didn't. We had a per diem. That per diem paid our meals. Um, we took, there's Mike right there. That's us. Uh, as we're taping for An Honest Liar, which is a documentary about uh, the amazing Randy's life. So, but, um, so Mike and I um, became very, very good friends. And uh, people say that we got a lot of money from the scientists. We didn't get any money. We lost money because I had to take time off work. Uh, I would go there on my holidays. It was a total of about 180 hours, you know, that was spread out over a long period of time. And yeah, we would sit in a room sometimes for days at a time and absolutely nothing would happen. 
Uh, other days, two or three things would happen. And in the early days, we were very, very cautious because we didn't know if they had one-way mirrors. We didn't know if they had cameras they'd left on when they said they were off. Um, so we did a lot of stuff outside of, in fact, the moment we got to, uh, to uh, uh, St. Louis, um, they got us a rental car. And I remember I didn't have my license with me or something at the time. And Mike was too young. Uh, no, Mike had his license because he was driving. Uh, for some reason, I wasn't driving. I don't remember what it was. But uh, Peter Phillips, we couldn't drive the rental car. So he gave us his car and Mike was driving the car. And I'm sitting, I'm getting bored. And keep in mind, this is our very first trip to, to the professor's house going from the airport. I open the glove compartment, there's some keys in there. So I start bending them up, you know, and I close it. And then I look in the back and I see there's a briefcase. I bring it to the front under the dash. It's locked. So I pick the lock, open it up. There's cutlery in there. So either he's a uh, kleptomaniac or he's going to be using this in the experiments with him. So I bend them all up, close it, lock it, put it in the back. I start reaching for the keys in the ignition and Mike slaps my hand and says, I think you've done enough. Now, the reason <laughs> we would do these things is because there's such a thing called spontaneous PK. And those are the things that would happen when we weren't working with the scientists, the things that we were hoping that the, sci the scientists were hoping that they were going to catch on camera, right? They were hoping that someday we're going to get that. So it was sort of that bait right there. Now, um, so we went through this whole thing. And then in the very end, we came out and said that everything we had done was a hoax. And, and, and you know, some scientists came out, a few of them, parapsychologists, and they said, it's wrong to fool scientists in the name of science. Well, in this particular case, I think it was wrong for the scientists to take the money saying that they were going to be performing science. And also, some parapsychologists, parapsychologists at the time had actually said, look, if you think you can fool scientists, then go ahead and send an addition. You won't be able to do it. But we were able to do it, and we did it continuously for four years. And it really changed the platform and the arena of parapsychology at the time. And uh, I, I don't think we did anything wrong. The hardest part for Mike and I, really the hardest part for Mike and I, were the fact that those parapsychologists had also become our friends. So we're living with them. We're breaking bread with them. We now have this relationship with them. And that was extremely difficult. If I was to do it all over again, absolutely, I would do it all over again. But I wouldn't get so emotionally involved. And as I said at the beginning, you know, people go and they go, oh, this stuff is, you know, nobody's going to be taken in by that stuff. But they are taken in by this stuff. Today. They're taken in by the mediums. They're taken in by all these scum artists. They're taken in by mentalists who want to say that they're genuine psychics and want people to believe. If you're going to say that, then why call yourself a mentalist? Call yourself a psychic. You know, get out of the profession. Be honest, you know, but you also have to be really honest because a lie is a lie is a lie. If you say everything is all NLP, that's a lie, right? It's not, right? There's very little, if any, NLP in what we actually do. Do we use psychology? In the variations of the effects we have nowadays, we do. But if you say it's all psychology, then you deserve to get exposed. But the problem with that is that exposes the good guys that are doing mentalism as well. It takes us down this path of like a reporter has the right to expose you because you are making a claim that is not true. In the context of a performance, it's one thing, like telling a story about um, when you were a kid and you never, you know, you never saw, or the little girl never saw snow. Well, that's kind of a lie, but you have sort of this poetic license for this. But in the overall context of everything, you need to let them know the truth. I'm an entertainer foremost. I don't want to change, in, during my performances, 
I really don't want to change their belief system. I do want them to open up to other ideas and thoughts. I will give them information to make their own decisions and I'll give them information so that they can make an educated an educated decision about things, not an ignorant decision about things. I know there's a group of people that will come to my show who aren't going to believe no matter what I say. No matter what I say, they're going to think that some of what I'm doing is real. I can't change. It doesn't matter what I say, right? There's going to be a group of people that are going to believe no matter what I say as well, right? So I have those two sides. But I have a very large group of people in the middle who have never seen a mentalist before. They don't know what this is. And I become the authoritative figure on stage as a result. So whatever explanation I'm giving, that's what they're going to eat up. So I need to be honest to those people. Now, this is what I believe, right? I can't tell other people what to believe. I just need to give you an ethical way to perform mentalism. And I've tried to do that through the years. And I've been blasted for it. Um, I've had people saying there's no place for uh, 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 an honest mentalist, you know, basically, you know, and, and there's no place for a fake mentalist. Well, that's what a mentalist is. He's fake. So I'm sorry. I'm going off on a tangent away from your question. No, no, it's there's great. No there's so much that I want to unpack here. Um, the first thing is uh, we were talking about being honest and, and the scientists that you were interacting with over the course of four years. So from 1979 to 1983 for Project Alpha. Uh, first of all, there was a rule in place that if they asked you point blank, are you lying or deceiving them? You were instructed to say yes. Did, uh, was, was there, I guess one of the things that I wonder is as the years stretched on, did it become harder and harder not to tell them? Um, or, and how do you um, figure out when to, when to finally break it? It became hard at one point, but yeah, we were told, we had these rules in place. We put them in place in the beginning. Whoever asks if we're working for Randy, yes. If we're ever asked if we're magicians and we're not psychic, yes. If we're ever asked about one specific thing, did you do this? It's a trick, yes. Now a spokesman came out at the end and said we had been asked and that's not true. <laughs> it was a spokesman from McDonald Douglas who was never around ever, um, never saw him, didn't come out until they were trying to clean up their mess at the very end. He said we were asked, no, this is what happened. Uh, right towards the end, Randy was at a convention. I believe it was in Pittsburgh. And I think it was actually a magic convention. Marcello Truzzi was there, who wrote a lot of stuff about parapsychology and that as well, but it was also a magician, right? He had a couple of cool effects, uh, interesting things. The one with a coin that's heads on both sides, and with a bunch of other chains, you toss them until there's one left with a date and you've predicted it. That was Marcello Truzzi's, right? So um, Randy sent two rumors. The first rumor was that Randy was working with a scientist to fool the rest of the parapsychology, you know, associations and parapsychologists. And then the other one was the truth is that Mike and I working with Randy to try to fool the scientists. Right. Yeah, and by the way, according um, to my research, that, this is uh, the IBM convention in 1981 in Pittsburgh. Oh my God. Where's yeah. Pittsburgh? Thank, wow. I see yeah. you have information that I didn't even remember. It's, I mean, I just, I got an impression. I, I started, I saw a P. And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, it could only be one person you got that from. Would have had to be Mike, Mike Edward. It would have to have been him. So yeah, I can't think of anybody else you would have got that from. So huh, unless there's somebody that went to that convention. So anyway, so he put out these two rumors. Um, and when we came to the scientists, the first one was the second one that they mentioned. They, they, they were there and they were laughing the whole time. And they're like, yeah, we heard some rumors while we're, you know, uh, oh, they went to a parapsychology convention and they had heard about the rumors there, right? Um, as well. And um, so Randy had put it out there, but I think they heard it from Marcello Trucci at the parapsychology convention. So they went there and they came back where they'd shown a video of me and Mike and everything. And they came back and they said, we heard these two rumors. And the first one is that you and Mike are like working with the amazing Randy to try to fool us. And Mike and I look at each other kind of like, 
And I, I know, know it to <laughs> we were literally, it's about to come out of our mouths, right? But they're laughing and they say, and we heard another one that's just as ludicrous. And it's that Randy is working with us, the parapsychologists themselves, to try to fool the rest of the parapsychology. So they were telling us these rumors, not asking them, they were telling us in the form of like, these are so ridiculous. How can they be true? Right. Even at the very end, when we came out and exposed everything in the Time Life building, um, they were not answering their phone, but they were calling Mike and I. And I have a recording somewhere of me uh, with one of them. And, uh, uh, you know, they, they say, hey, we've heard this, this rumor. They called it a rumor. And uh, that, you know, you were working with Randy and trying to fool us this whole time. And I say, not right away. I say, well, what do you think? He said, it can't be true. I'm like, unfortunately, it is true. Um, right. And then the next question was, and consistent questions, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? He was looking for one thing, one little thing that he could hold on to. Now, keep in mind, I'm also taking educated guesses at times at things when I don't know anything, right? Um, so those things I can't explain, but I'm trying to stay away from those things because I know it's just educated guesses, right? And I'm, that's where I got my universal drawing, which is uh, basically a triangle with a circle next to it, which can be a bicycle, can be part of a plane, could be a flower, could be a, a perfect. <laughs> In that case, they picked out the word thumbtack, so it looked exactly like it, right? Um, so yeah, it, it was really, really sad. Mike and I, towards the end, actually got really scared because there was a guy by the name of Tony Edwards uh, who was in uh, a BBC uh, producer of a TV show. And it was towards the end, we were at a parapsychology convention uh, where Yuri Geller was attending as well. And um, uh, he he, uh, he wrote Randy and Randy gave him the like, same exact 11 caveats he had given parapsychologists. And this guy followed every single one. The only thing we got away with was when we went to lunch, Mike had taken uh, new the electronic watches were new at that time. So they were expensive, but cheap looking. Now you get them for a dollar, the same exact watches. And Mike put it in a sandwich when he put it in the microwave. So I stuck mine in there too. You know, oh, that's a great idea. And that made it all googly. And they were absolutely amazed by that. That's me <laughs> with Yuri Geller at that convention, actually, back in the day, right? Um, so... Uh, when we were pretending to be be real. And Gello's on the same stage with us saying, these kids can do things I can't do. They're genuine psychics. They had him saying that we were amazing. And it was that same TV show where we came out and we explained everything was an illusion on that TV show. They had that footage, but it was called Magical Miracle. Gello sits in there in an interview that he's never met us, never seen us before. They could have shown the footage of us with Gello at the time. They didn't do it because they wanted, hoping it was going to be a serious and call it magic or miracle and not say that it's magic anyway. So anyway, back to Tony Edwards. So he follows every single protocol. The moment that the cameras go off. There's another kid there, me, Mike, and a kid by Masawaki Kyoto. Masawaki Kyoto was a kid from uh, Japan who twisted uh, forks. Um, and I know exactly what he was doing. He was using a gimmick to do it. And uh, he sat there and he's twisting a fork. And Tony Edwards has a complete mental breakdown screaming, yelling. If it wasn't for Randy, if he hadn't followed his protocol, he would have got this on tape. It was because of Randy he didn't get on tape. Randy's evil. Randy's a devil. And excuse me if any young people are listening, but this is what happened. He looked down at his pants and right at his crotch, there was a big white stain. Well, it wasn't white. It was just a big stain. But he called it. He said, look what, what I've done. I've had a demonic ejaculation. <laughs> I had to spend the night with his assistant, D. Clayton, in her room all night because he was calling, which wasn't a bad thing, by the way. But but he was calling her consistently because screaming and yelling about Randy and how evil Randy was. 
And it was at that moment that Mike and I said to Randy, look, you know, we need to come out and, you know, we need to expose this sooner than later because, you know, we're really messing with people's lives right here and people's, you know, psyche. And Randy said, look, it's going to be a month. The TV show's coming out. Just hold out. And we did. We held out until to the end of that month. I will tell you on the bingo card of things I expected you to talk about in this interview, demonic ejaculation was not on that card. Be surprised. Uh, I no I one of these things I'm going to try to hold back. I am no, not. No, no, it's great. I am so um, unfortunately, 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 my manager, we have podcasts we can't put out that he won't put out because I am so, look, I don't think I have a racist bone in my body. Maybe there's something in there. You know, I don't think, I mean, I am accepted of everybody. I try to love everybody. I don't yuck anybody else's yum unless it's hurting somebody else. So I say a lot of things that can be taken wrong, but with no intent. And unfortunately in this day and age, People have forgot to take things in intent as opposed to what their own personal opinion of something is. So I I, I, I will try to be good. <laughs> yeah. No, no. And, and also the stuff you're talking about where, you know, the scientists are being presented with oh, yeah. very clear evidence that you guys are, are using magic and not using, you are not actual psychics. And it almost, and there are studies that show that people will actually double down on those beliefs rather than look at the disconfirming evidence and realize they were wrong. And if that is not a, a perfect metaphor for what's happening in this political situation, yep. uh, in many ways on both sides. Um, on both sides. I've seen videos yeah. on both sides of the extreme ignorance of where they say things and I just don't even want to hear the truth from the other side at all on both. And the ignorance is like on both sides is so astonishingly amazing that I cannot believe that the, we are living in the age that we're living now. You know, I just, it's just, it's, it's scary and sickening in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing I do want to show, though, that uh, I found the, the footage where you do reveal that, you know, the Alpha Project has been essentially a, a way to reveal that these uh, the, these scientists are being duped by by very human and non-supernatural uh, methods. Uh, and uh, I want to play it for the audience because you can hear the audience reaction, how surprising this is for everybody. So let me, let me set this up if it's what I think it is, because I have no yeah. clue what you have. This is all a surprise <laughs> to me. Um, if it's what I think it is. It looks like so a circle and a triangle. Yeah. Just, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, um, I, I, we, uh, we were playing psychics up to that point. We hadn't exposed ourselves. Randy held a press conference in the Time Life building. There were press from all around the world, all around the world, because Randy was well, well known at the time. And they had thought that Randy, he hadn't said this, but they thought that Randy had found two genuine psychics and that he was presenting us. And we did some things to convince those reporters even more that we were genuine psychics. So the, the, what they were getting was not what they expected. Yeah, and also as an extra note, uh, Randy is dressed like he's ready to go to prom and Banachek is ready to play soccer. They're, they're going to, they look like they're attending very different events to give you a I warning. I literally had no fashion sense at all back then. I look <laughs> back and I am horrified by what I was wearing and my hair and everything else. But yeah, go ahead, embarrass so me. Go. I'm going to ask these two gentlemen a very simple direct question. Can you tell us how do you do it? I'll do it. Be quite honest. We were you able to hear that with sound? Yes, I could hear it. Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> it, I muted my mic, so I wanted to make sure everybody was able to hear it. Um, but yeah, you can hear that, that, green, that, green, that, green, that was a green sweater, I'll have you know. That's a green right. sweater, yes, with orange and everything else. Yeah. Uh. 
Right, even if the audio was muted, the outfits were loud. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, I, I wanna steer, oh, before we steer into our surprise guest, and we have uh, some epic, epic surprise guests. I'm so excited. Uh, uh, let's talk about your name uh, briefly, um, because Ken Weber is in the house. We love Ken Weber. Uh, love Ken. He wrote, uh, and as he ages, he looks more and more like 70s TV Banachek. Um, but that actually is not far off from where your name came from. You were Steve Shaw. For a yep. moment, though, I believe you on your passport were St was Steve Martin. Is that correct? Uh, well, okay. So let's let's yeah let's go into that. So my stepdad, uh, his last name was Martin, right? Um, so I was Steve Martin before there was a Steve Martin, right? So you know, which, which is also funny because I lived in England and we lived in this one complex. My one brother was Barry, the other one was David, and just in the next complex, there was a David, Barry, and Stephen Martin that lived there in reverse <laughs> order of ages. So yeah, weird, weird, weird. But anyway, so yeah, I was uh, I was Steve Shaw when I went to South Africa. Now it wasn't on my passport though. I did go by that in school and everywhere else, right? So I was known as Stephen Martin. So and I I didn't like the name Stephen. I wanted to go by the name Steve, so I adopted Steve instead of Stephen. Um, in uh, the name Banachek, which, by the way, Ken is very close to right. It is the TV Banachek. But if you look, that's C-E-K, not C-H-E-K, right? Um, but I always liked that TV show. I loved that TV show. I did. Uh, I was doing corporate shows. I was in my early 20s. And kids in their early 20s now are so much more mature than kids when in my 20s. Plus, keep in mind, I was socially inept because I was raising my three brothers and brothers in South Africa. I didn't have that interaction, right? I had one pair of clothes for an entire year that were bright yellow that I got, and I dyed them green for the next year, right? And so it was too holy for me to wear them again. So socially, I was really socially inept. Even in high school, I was a kid in the back of the classroom, heavy winter coat on, afraid if a teacher called on me and they offered it, I would turn bright red, like for no reason at all. It wasn't until I started bending metal and I started doing these things that Randy had shown, you know, this world to me. Um, it wasn't until then that I started opening up and finding a home. The home became my stage where wherever it might be. But um, yeah, so back to the name Banachek before I go off on too many other tangents. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'd watched that show enjoyed the show and it was always interesting it was it was kind of magical in a way um there'd be a statue that would be put on a uh locked inside of a uh a, a, a truck it would be taken all across from new york to la or something like that and when it appears there's no statue where did it go it turns out that it really wasn't the statue that loaded was loaded it had already been switched out and it was a block of ice <laughs> in, the, in the statue. So that's where it disappeared by time. And I love that show. I love that show. But I was doing corporate shows, young, immature. Um, and uh, I, I give them my introduction shyly and they uh, say, oh, I want to do my own introduction. Oh, we've seen him on CNN Live, the Today Show. And I've done a lot back then because of, you know, the Project Alpha thing. We've seen him do this, this, and this. Please welcome Steve. What was the last name again? <laughs> Next show, same week. Um, yeah, the last guy forgot me. I want to do my own introduction. Okay, that's okay. But the last guy forgot my name. Oh, yeah, Steve Shaw. I got it. Great. No problem. Same thing. Forgets my name. Happened three times in a week, right? And the last guy forgot my first and last name. And I'm like, why, why is this happening to me? And I'm always thinking of the psychology of things. And I thought, well, Steve's a pretty common name. I guess they're not thinking about it. That's why they forget it because they're thinking about all this other stuff they have to memorize. Shaw's a pretty common name. Steve has a hard syllable, but it's really not. It doesn't really grab you, right? 
Um, and so, you know, I wanted a, I wanted a name that had at least two or three hard syllables, right? And uh, something that had a mnemonic. And the old TV show had been popular for the couple of seasons about all these older guys that were in these companies. I was like, all right, they're going to remember that name. And it has three hard syllables. B, not, check. And K, you know, it's great, you know? So, yeah. And they have to ask about it, the name. And even if they're making fun of it, fun of it, they're thinking of the name. So this is great. They're not going to forget the name, and nobody's ever forgot the name since. They do spell it wrong sometimes because I didn't want the C E K because Americans would go Banasek, so I put an H in there, and I didn't want them to go, oh yeah, bounce a check, blah blah blah, funny funny. So I didn't put an extra C <laughs> in the very end right there. I now get banana check. <laughs> um, actually, by the way, ended up being on that one three picture of me, Randy, and Mike. It was on something that went out. It wasn't until Mike pointed it out to me that it said banana check. And I think when you type real fast, sometimes that extra an gets in there. And then I love that because I always, you know, I, we always tell our magic campers, and we always, it's what, the important thing is you always check your fly. You always got to make sure that it's up yep. before you walk out. And I'm going to start calling that a banana check. And I have no, you know what, depending on the situation, if it's respectful, not when you're introducing me on stage or something like that, but in a fun way, there's about 20 memes, if not more memes about me, where I'm either dressed as a banana, um, I've got hands <laughs> as a banana, uh, my head's on some check girl that's dancing, you know, banana, you know, so, a banana you know, check, yeah. or a check that's made, or my, my signature, sort of fake signature, you know. So I've got these like, twenty means of that, and I love it because you know people are doing it playfully. It's fun, you know. There are there were three groups of people that would call me Steve Shaw after I changed my name to Banachek, and it's now legally Banachek. Legally, that's my last name. Um, there were three groups. There were the people that knew me from years ago, my friends like Richard Hatch and people like that. Um, you know, Charlie Randall. Uh, they were there, they still call me Steve once in a while, you know, and that's fine, that's good. Um, there's the group of people who want people to think they know me better than they do, but they have a right. very small <laughs> they've met me once or twice, right? But they know yeah. that name. And it's their way of telling people, my oh, friends Stevie, my best friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And then there's a group of people who would just do it rudely because they didn't want to respect that that was my name, but they hated the fact that I exposed fakes, frauds, and things like that. Um, and that's pretty blatant when I hear that, because I can also usually hear it in the tone or in the way mm. that they type a text or something like that. So there's those three groups that go with the Steve Shaw, but it is definitely Banachek. Um, it's not Steve Shaw. Legally, it's Banachek, which always cracked me up, because those same guys in the last group would say, how could you trust Banachek? He even lies about his name. <laughs> it's like, come on, you know. Well, I will say you 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 have outlived the show. I think more people know Banachek the magician than Banachek the Banachek the seventies. Uh, Pro probably, probably, you know. But yeah, you know. Props to the name. I love the name. It's a great name. Yeah. And when I when I first started going coming out in the U.S., there were no other Banacheks. It was a racehorse. Uh, there was a greyhound. There was a band. <laughs> And there was a construction company that had the website over in the UK and they did nothing with it. And this was before you could put a website on hold so it automatically renewed. Gotcha. And I kept waiting, 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 you know. And after like three or four years, I finally got it. So, yeah. Well, let's turn because we have some uh, we have some surprise guests who are anxiously waiting to come on. Um, normally, I'm more subtle with this. But um, take us back to 2008. I believe you were touring with a sort of mega group. We, we alluded to this at the beginning of the episode. Uh, there'll be a theme of cons and scams. Um, there is a, a mega group on tour. Can you tell us what that show was about and what it was so called? That was called, that was called Hoodwinked. Um, it was, I think it was a brilliant written show, you know, and uh, it was both.
Bob Arno. Um, it was Todd, Todd Robbins, Richard Turner, and myself. And, um, you know, uh, 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 it was, Todd was sort of the MC. Bob stole items. Um, and, and uh, of course, you know, Richard Turner was the brilliant he Richard was, Turner. Nobody wanted to believe he was uh, blind. It was one of the, the items wasn't other people's material. He was stealing, he was a pickpocket. Bob Arno? <laughs> yeah. No, the way you phrase it, I want to make sure that people who didn't know Bob's work didn't think you're like, oh, okay, and he just stole break, stuff. breaking up a little bit, but Bob was, yeah, he, he yeah. pickpocket. Absolutely. He would steal items on stage, and then Todd would take one of the items, like the cell phone, do a little bit of a reading for a lady. And then later on, we showed that we had stolen her identity, basically, and hacked into her house or into someplace, and then from the, that she owned. And we would say, tell us, stop whenever you want to. And we'd get to a certain situation where they would say, oh, no more, no more, like a dating situation or something like that. Or, you know, a dating app or something like that we'd hacked into with some hackers. Um, and then we showed that we could have very easily stolen the identity of the entire audience. And that's <laughs> what the show was about because they had given us more information willingly than what we had on that one lady. I can't say well, too much about uh, it because uh, if I ever get to vibe, I don't want to give away the, the exact premise because I don't want somebody else taking that premise. And that would be my fault. And it was a, yeah, it was a Mills production. So a Michael Mills production. Uh, and uh, it's, I'm, I'm honored by this because it, it was an incredible production. Everybody is the sort of the best of what they do. Um, and, and in with us right now is Richard Turner and Bob Arno, two of the cast members of Hoodwinked. Hey guys. I just did a banana check. Good to see you. Have to talk one of the <laughs> Can, can I just say one thing? Yeah, you, you can do it on here. The reason why that show didn't go more years is because the amount that we were able to get from the ID stuff in the beginning, who needed to work anymore? That's exactly right. Banachek is standing yeah. and what the hell am I saying? So what I'm what I'm implying here. Yeah, no, no, I'm close. I'm close to that. I'm having a hard time hearing you, Bob. Ah, okay. Yeah. Is it is it clear or not clear? Can you hear me? No, it's clear. My speaker is not very loud, so that's the problem. Yeah, it's okay. my my and end. I also I also want to know before we go any further, Banachek. Last year, what color was that jacket you're wearing? <laughs> Wait, say that again. Last year, what? The, Last the, year, what was that? Maybe movie and, and see if my audio is better in a different place. Okay. So um, I'm going to just see. Well, while Bob and Jess, um, Richard, if you can I'm tell us a little bit about, I can only imagine touring the country with four of the greatest uh, con artists, uh, people who are all uh, the master of their trade. What was better. that like? Can you hear me, Manichek? I can, yes. Say that again, okay. you guys are talking, you guys are all talking over each other. So I can hear Bob better now that I put the earpiece in. So yes. Great. Okay, just one, I'll repeat that thing. The color of your jacket, what color was it last year? Last year, my jacket, depending where I was, probably would have been black last year. Okay, so not like or, uh, that. No, not like, no. <laughs> I'm going to shut up until I have a question. 
<laughs> so it's great. I, I, I love the idea of you guys all touring together. Was there uh, anything that happened behind the scenes or backstage? Were there antics? Yes, I, I think the one thing was a lot Go of ahead, Bob. we were uh, wondering whether we could get Banachek to go deeper into revealing the crime aspect of psychic. Yeah, it, it, was, it, was an, it was an interesting show because you have a very, when you're working with other performers, you want everybody to shine, right? So it's really hard to get some of those messages in such a short period of time as you perform because first of all, you have to show that you're an expert in what you do, like with what Bob does, you know, when he was up there or what Richard does, right? You've got to show you're an expert in these professions. And then from that, you can go into those other areas, but it, that takes up time. So it's like, how much of you of that can you actually do? You know, I can show that I can steal thoughts. I can show that I can get ideas from people. And I can show basically that I'm stealing information because, you know, when people ask me, and Teller said this years ago, he gave me this premise. He said, look, um, you know, tell people that, um, you know, like uh, uh, Siegfried and Roy, they do magic with lions and tigers, right? Uh, uh, you know, David Copperfield, Magic with Illusions, you know, Chris Angel, Magic with Illusions, Penn and Teller, you know, um, you know, the, the beautiful magic that they do with props and with people. And that basically you do magic with information, which is exactly what I do. It's how I'm able to get the information, right? I'm doing magic to get, get that information. It's that same way. So it gives people another way of like not having to lie about what we do. But I think, I think Bob, part of the problem becomes into if we're all talking about those things, and I think we touched on Project Alpha briefly, but not enough to really give the full story of it. It's extremely difficult to do it within that, what was it, one, one and a half hours, whatever that time was, you know? You know, we, I mean, we had Richard up there and Richard would come out and I would lead Richard out on stage. And I know back in then before Richard's um, documentary, he was very reluctant for people to, um, know that he he couldn't see and part of that was he wanted them to you know experience his talent and take it for the talent that it was and not that wouldn't be a part of them thinking how great and how incredible he was right um but he, he learned to embrace it and i think probably can that I, should, can and I you correct me if i'm wrong richard tell you, tell you one thing that pertains to richard and then let richard make yep. a comment about this i tried in those years and that is before Richard did his documentary, to say that the audience were fascinated with his early years, sneaking almost into criminal aspect of behavior with his hands, the cheating yeah. thing. I tried to force Richard into saying that the public wants to see more of that. Yeah, but you, nobody forces Richard to do anything. So Richard is his own man, you know, and rightfully he so. Resisted, he resisted a lot of this, but later in the documentary and today, he is sniffing in that direction. Yeah, yeah. Now, <laughs> one, one thing I want to finish on that real quick that I was saying about Richard is I would walk Richard out stage. We would be on stage with Richard, right? And the audience thought when we would say that Richard couldn't see, they thought that was a con. They thought <laughs> that was the con. Like they didn't believe that he could not see, right? Because he was so good at what he was doing. Richard, any comments on that? 
Yeah, I like the way you phrased it in the bio blog that I put together, that it was a con inside of a con inside of a con that we caught, they, we told, first we cheated them. Then we told them that they were cheated by somebody they couldn't see. And then they thought that was the con. So we conned them. Oh gosh, I can't even remember how you phrased it. It was very, very clever the way you, uh, you wrote it down. But it was a con within a con within a con. And they left the thing believing that I could see, even though we uh, made, tried to make it very clear that he couldn't see. Yeah, yeah. We had a lot of those moments within that show. It was really a very well, subtly, it was a great show. You know, it, it, had, growth, it had directions it could go and it needed to grow. But it was also a fun group of guys to work with. So we had a lot of fun. Can I, can I mention why I believe this show did not go to Las Vegas. This is going to take me 40 seconds to tell you. Okay, go for it. We had producers who came and saw it, or buyers, or agents, or big production companies that had uh, properties in Las Vegas. They loved this show. And when we were in Detroit in 2013, the same show as we were in 2008 in Montreal, they wanted us for Las Vegas. The big problem was we are three, four different entertainers. And the money that each of us wanted for per week, by the time you put that together and a profit for the producer and for the production company, it simply was too much of a gamble. So if we had been younger, less successful, <laughs> uh, maybe 25, 30, we would have been hungry and we would have accepted less money and we would have been in Las Vegas. But none of us were hungry. <laughs> you know what? Well, there, there, was there was also another reason. There was another reason why, too. Um, and what happened, we were supposed to go into the Wayne Brady Theater, okay? It was almost a done deal with Base Entertainment. And then Base Entertainment during that time had a huge shakeup with all of their, their production people. And because of that shakeup, they decided to put us on hiatus. And at the same time, that's when all the hotels in Vegas at that time were claiming that we're gonna go into bankruptcy. And they didn't want to, and this is what I heard, um, for, I think it was from Mills Entertainment or from somebody, there was, uh, they didn't wanna put a show that they loved and they thought was gonna be a big success into a room only have it to shut down because the hotel went bankrupt or claimed bankruptcy and because once the show shuts down it's hard to get it back out there again so this is something that i had heard as well that base loved the show so much they put it on hiatus to save it for later but you know how things happen you know people people come and go well i, I definitely want to jump in because it is amazing that the show existed at all because you guys are at the top of your field in your respective fields but I, i'd like to pose this question to richard first um, did you guys learn from each other? Did you guys, was there a sort of a cross-pollination while you guys toured together? Oh, of course. Uh, and of course, Bob, you know, at the, the top of the pickpocket king and, uh, and of course, uh, and Todd Robbins, you know, funny as all get out and smooth as all get out transitions. Um, anyway, but the fact that we all had different elements of the same theme conning in different in, in different fashions the cards mental uh slick talking and then pulling pockets so it was it was just it was just i have to say it was just a really fun show and we had instant standing ovations at every show and another uh, to add on what bob said 
you know, uh, we were going to uh, open up uh, the Venetian, I believe it was in 2000, March of 2009. And of course the market crashed October of 2008. So that was part of the reason why they put it on hiatus. And then when we stood it back up, then Bob went to film his amazing documentary, Pickpocket King, Banachek, started working with, uh, with uh, Chris Angel. Todd Robbins' son got uh, picked up as a soap opera kid. So he became a stage dad. And then I started filming Delt. So they, it was really hard to, to get us all back together uh, when we all had these major projects that we were uh, going and, and uh, participating in. So, but it was, just, it was just a fun. It was one of the uh, more interesting and fun uh, times in my life. And the real cool thing for me is my son got to tour with us for part of it when he was like 12 and 13. And uh, so that, that uh, made it fun. And then, of course, Bambi's, uh, Bob's wife, Bambi, and... Anyway, it was just an uh, it was just an amazing time with an amazing crew. And then Bob, I stayed at Bob's house last year, his beautiful estate in uh, Arizona. He and Bambi. Uh, in fact, Bob, I'll probably be out there again. Over, no, no, actually, we I, we changed it. Uh, I thought I was coming out again, dude. I was going to interrupt you and 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 come hunker down with you. <laughs> That's awesome. And by the way, you mentioned the standing ovations. Bob uh, provided me with some footage from the end of the show. I think this shows you how, uh, this gives you a taste of how much people loved it. So I'll share it right now. I have to tell you, right after that ending, there was a, an additional ending where we came out and were interplaying with each other. That was very well scripted. It was a sort of on top, on top. Yeah, and I believe it says, uh, it says Khand, uh, it, it, was that a previous name? No, the first one. Well, then it turned into Khand. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, it was Hoodwink and I then became Khan. It's possible that Hoodwink did not have the same resonance in terms of public draw as Khan. Scammed would have been good, but then people would go and say, well, I was scammed of the effect and were unhappy. <laughs> so I, as somebody who is currently uh, the co-host of a show called Scam, I yeah. it's definitely sometimes hard to secure domain names when you have the word scam <laughs> built into your name. <laughs> Exactly. Now, you know, I remember that um, Richard would go work out every day and I would have to get him and would go work out together. So I spent a lot of time with Richard talking and, you know, and him teaching me how to work out. Um, and then I remember Bob almost every day says, got to come to my room, Banachek, come. I'm like, okay. He'd say, you got to see the next new electronic thing, or you got to see the next new wallet. You got to, and he, he just, he's, he's like a collector of every magic thing that ever comes out, but good stuff. Like he doesn't, somehow he manages to find the good stuff and not the junk. So it was always well, the luck because I didn't have, I didn't have to buy them. To I got to see them and then decide if I wanted to buy them. <laughs> these were, these were um, electronics 
that could be used in a scammy way. So yeah. these are not three shell game or, or magic props. They were all things that had to do with where you could present something and people would buy into it, the real wallet, the real money, the real ID theft, but it had some electronic background. And I have to say that entertainment today, or whether you read a book or television, or listen to any news thing, everything you see today, social media or whatever, has an element of conning and scam. There's no reality left in this world. <laughs> and and uh, I think that if you take Banachek, your way of uh, presenting things based on the psychology of reading, well, I have the same thing with law enforcement, where we are trying to teach about microexpression and how the intelligence community around the world, certainly in Europe, are using microexpression in order to trap or to find the bad guys. And so yeah. we all, the four of us here, contribute in some small way or another to clean up society. Now, I know it's a whole hour that we can spend on this, but I think you have sniffed, you have given just little snippets of that in your program today. Yeah. You know, you know, though, we, we have to say, though, those things are really, really important. But at the same time, it's important to make sure that none of the BS gets put into those things as well, like we talked about earlier, because a lie becomes a lie becomes a lie. And, you know, you promote something in this day and age. If it goes along with somebody's agenda, they will take it, whether it's a fact or not, and they will use it and they'll promote that even further. And I think it's important that we always, you know, make sure we stay with the truth on those things. As much so as here, here is where I think it's very difficult. When you are younger and still hungry, you're trying to get the money for the, for the school of your kids and the house and the payment and on and on and on. Yep. You compromise on some of the rules and yeah. you get sucked into doing things and stand for and say things that you know morally or ethically are slightly wrong deep inside. But the more you assemble and get your security in place, the more you recognize the scams and the con, and the more I think we have a responsibility to shove that truth out and reveal yep. wherever it is. I think yeah, it's really, I, I think I, it's really, I had the opportunity to meet uh, Banachek and I have hung out, uh, Todd Robbins and I go way back. Uh, Richard and I have interacted at conventions. Uh, Bob, we've just met, but uh, what's amazing is as much as it's a show about cons, you guys are uh, very ethical and upright and, uh, for menches, to use the Yiddish word. Um, so I think that is also a testament um, that you guys are, are great guys and you're using your power. You could use your powers for evil, but you're definitely using your powers for good. I, you know, even having to do that, we've got to be, I think, careful to a point because we all come from a starting place. And I was talking to somebody the other day about this, about how some guys start out and they're inspired by somebody like they might be inspired by like Preston back there. I would see a lot of, you know, young medalists coming out and they've got their glasses and they don't even wear glasses. They're doing this and holding it the same way, speaking the same way, looking the same way and everything else. And I think they, you know, you've got to give them a little slap on the wrist to let them know, hey, that stuff isn't okay. But at the same time, help these people grow, you know, and the way you help them grow is not alienating them, but guiding these people in the right direction so that they know it's wrong 
and they know other people are going to call them out on it. And it's, you know, we all came from someplace, somewhere, somehow, and we learn what's wrong and what's right on our journey. But it's our job as seasoned performers to let them know what the right path is or give them a few different right paths to go. Yeah, and we have we have one more surprise guest after this. Um, so, uh, but before we do, uh, Richard, uh, I, I want to give you uh, a, a chance to, to speak again as well. Um, are there are there very fond memories of the tour or of of, of hanging out with Banachek that you you could share with us? Gosh, I can't think of anything off the top of the head other than just the whole experience it was one giant, uh, one giant piece of entertainment, one giant fun, one giant party without partying, if that makes sense. No, I, will, I will say this one thing about Richard. When I would go get him to go to the gym, he'd answer his door and there were no lights on in the room. Like it was like a weird, it was just a weird experience because normally you go get somebody, you know, they have their lights on, but he doesn't need lights. There was literally right. <laughs> no lights on at all. So for anybody that thinks that Richard may not be blind at this point, I am telling you, this was a long time ago and he had no lights on at all. He's just very good at getting around and making it seem like he's not when he is. And also he knows that uh, any of us need to work out, not because he can see that we're out of shape, but he knows he is almost definitely in better shape than anybody. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and Bob, do you have any final words about the tour? Well, I, um, I, I enjoyed uh, not just the number of days that we were together. And I have to tell you that the difference between the Montreal show and the one we did in Detroit, same show, different name, different package, were quite different. Uh, yeah. We removed a few things that were very good from Montreal that were a little dangerous and, and it was taken away. But uh, I think that the whole creative process, I have never been in a package where, um, well, there were a few things that I can tell you that I thought was kind of silly and in retrospect, stupid. The producer had a choreographer or someone who was gonna be cool and tell us how to dress and put us in clothes that they, and this was a person who was 24. I happen to be fanatic about Italian clothes. So here is this girl who is 24, who is saying, could you be wearing this suit? And it was really, you know, old fashioned compared with what Milano <laughs> and Rome has to have. There were a few things like that, where they were trying to shape the show in a way where they thought it was cool Las Vegas but they really didn't have it. Well, this is a perfect example. I don't think that that shot of the four of us was the most coolest one. On the other hand, you, Manacek, coming out to the window, <laughs> looked very cool. Where is that photo? Uh, I think it's been up there already. I think I saw it already at one point, yeah. Um, one, one thing I will say about that, yeah, the Detroit show had been rewritten and um, they ended up going ahead and bringing out all the producers and everybody on the first night of the of our show, the first night before it had all been re, you know worked in and everything else, which was not necessarily a good thing. Still a great show, but still not you know like the other show. And then the moment they left, and the moment the producers left, we all started slowly going back to the old show. And by the time the end of that <laughs> week, it was like great, fantastic. But everybody had left. Everybody had left already. You know. Uh, 
yeah. Well, I'm, it's really great seeing Bob. both you guys. Yeah, thank you guys so, so much for joining us. Um, you can follow Bob. Uh, wait, 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 one, se- one second. It, it, one, yeah. one second, one second. Is Bob sitting in the limo? Is Bob <laughs> sitting in a limousine? Said, are you Bob, sitting are you in, in a limo, limo? In his home, and I agree that it looks that I walked outside a few minutes ago, but <laughs> the audio was not so good. So now I'm in the Okay. I don't own a limo. I have a very nice sports car, but I don't have anything fancy. Some people have just, just so you know, some people have just walked in the theater, so the lights went on. Oh, there you yeah, go. Perfect. So, yeah. uh, and, and you're just really rubbing in, Bob, because I'm currently in my tiny Manhattan apartment and you're in uh, a, a palatial home with a backyard where each room is larger than my apartment. So I appreciate you rubbing it in. I need to uh, pick more pockets. Um, but Bob, thank you so much. You can follow him at bobarno.com. And uh, Richard, uh, if you can plug it one more time, I know you're working on a bio blog. Uh, if you can describe what that is so people who uh, are fans, which I think is everybody, uh, can follow along. Well, during the COVID, I had like 200,000 words that I put together with uh, John Rockerbomber. And I thought, okay, I'm trapped. I got to do something. So I'm, I put it together. It's going to be in bite-sized pieces. It'll be uh, put out where you can follow it, read it on any device. It's like between 10 to 20 lines. Each piece has a video from something, and it's a total of 480, 424 pieces. So if I did five a week, it would take 80 to 85 weeks to have it all come out. Um, but people have been trying to put out, get me to put out my life story for years. And uh, so this is what I put together. And I did just uh, sign a deal to have my life uh, story turned into a A-list motion picture, which um, that information will come out as it comes out. Well, if this interview becomes a part of the movie, I'd like to be played by Brad Pitt or Fred Savage, whoever is available. Uh, okay, I cheated Brad Pitt in the, in the movie uh, Tree of Life. I know him. Yes. Uh, there we go. Perfect. Well, Richard <laughs> and Bob, thank you so, so much. We really, really appreciate it. Take Thanks. care, stay safe, and stay well. Bye. Uh, and uh, by the way, we talked about show outfits. Um, and the outfit, this is your outfit in Hoodwinked. Um, uh, not too far off from what you're wearing now, but you also toured with another show uh, in which I think you dressed like the devil from Damn Yankees. Um, yeah, this was a Chris Angel show. There's actually a picture of me upside down uh, somewhere uh, in the middle of the rest of the cast. And I am, uh, I'm almost vampire-ish. Where I, yeah, that big <laughs> outfit, right? That's my head, I think, on Brett Daniels' body, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> so, unless you have the Brett Daniel version of that, which that, uh, Brett never went out with the show. Um, but the post had already been made when I came in. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so it was, a, it was an interesting show. I had to have a red piece in my hair. We all had something red somewhere on our outfits uh, in some place, some way. And so I had this red streak that was in, in my hair, which I ended up like liking it after a while, it became part of who and what I was. But every show we would open up the show in that position. I would be hanging upside down from a rig. Um, <laughs> and the rig had been made from uh, one of those inversion things, right? So uh, that my boots basically were in this inversion thing. The problem was when the rig had been made, they put the pin in upside down. So the the pin was this way, not this way. So that pin could have fallen out if it, you know, if it got weak or something. And so every night I'm 25 feet up in the air, hanging upside down. I'm going, if this thing breaks, you know what? Just let me die. 
I don't want to be a vegetable. <laughs> I don't want to be this. Oh, one night, one night, it was a Chris Angel production. I, I co-produced that with Chris. We we took every act, we rewrote their acts. Like Stefan Vanell was a brilliant, brilliant card guy. Um, and by the way, he Stephon, was coming in from a live feed. This was pre-Zoom show, so in many ways, oh, wait, he, you know what? He psychically I, knew that that would be a thing that magicians did: is beam themselves in virtually. You got to jump It's on. interesting. Yeah, it's interesting you have this one because this one, I'm in the front and it doesn't look like our top guy is in the front. This must have been a very, very, uh, I wonder where this came well, from. Well, you know what? There's somebody else in this poster who I think might be able to help us. She is in Utah right now performing at the Mystique uh, Magic Theater where you can check it out. She is a phenomenal magician. Uh, so excited to have her on the program. Make some noise, get excited. Another surprise guest for Battlecheck. It's Kristen Lambert, everybody. How you doing, love? Oh. Banana check. Ring, ring, ring. Banana phone. That's how you're in my phone as banana check. <laughs> that's brilliant. That's, that's that's absolutely brilliant. Sorry, I keep fiddling with my ear. This keeps coming out. I wasn't going to do it this way. But um, yeah, so that poster right there, I'm in the yeah, front, and it looks like Brett Daniel's that's... still hanging upside down. No, that's not you in the front. That's You're not even in that poster, banana check. Oh, he... That's no, me right that's there with a the red that's... tie on. Oh, yeah, you're off to the side of me. That's right. How and then is that even possible? Kristen, I think is Captain Jack Sparrow. He I'm wasn't sorry? in the show. He ended up not being in the show. The guy that you're pointing at right there ended yeah. up not even being in the show. This is a pre, pre, pre poster. Like somehow you've got a pre weird yeah, poster that nobody else has. Yeah, yeah. So, which is kind of cool in a way. That was just Kristen, do you remember the time? Do you remember the time I was hanging upside down and we had the guys with as a newspaper prediction? Do you remember the time that we had that uh, one fire crew that came in and they overloaded all of that pyrotechnics and I was oh upside God. down and all the flames coming down on you and I was literally in the flames and you're all running ow, 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 ow. And I'm going, I can't go anywhere. I'm stuck up here. Yeah. I have this huge metal watch. You guys just on. abandoned that upside down man attack. Oh, it was. They're all. They're all. They're all being good sports. You remember no, that? Pyro was in the Met trunk too. I got it in the Met trunk, and it like totally blasted me because you know I have hair on top, and um, yeah, and it just was like boom. My hair. I wasn't allowed to wear any hairspray because um of the pyro. Flammable. Yeah. 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 Yeah, this was this was a this was a, a, a to me this was the best touring show of all time out there when it comes to magic, and not because I was in it, but because of the thought that was put into it, the amount of thought that Chris put into the show with the music, re-editing the music, doing most of it himself or with other people, of course, but him being hands-on with the entire production. I mean, we took, we took Stefan. Yeah, I mean, we took well, Stefan. I'll, I'll give you an example. We kind of skipped to the end. I think what I'd like to yep. do, because I know Kristen, uh, we've been talking a little bit earlier, but uh, you were sort of, you became involved in Chris Angel's show. And I believe Banachek's an important part uh, and reason why. Yes, Banachek, I don't even know if you know this, but um, I got the call from Chris about doing his Spike TV show, Believe. And I was like a little on the fence. And then they told me that you were going to be the magic producer. And I, in my email drafts at that time, had an email drafted to you saying, hey, I bought your PK uh, pamphlet 
And I think it can be a lot more than just the demonstration that you describe. And I want to chat with you about it. Can we talk? Blah, blah, blah. And then I never had yeah. to send the email because I signed up and, and worked with you. Yeah. So and she's talking about PK touches, me. the original PK touches. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And then you did teach yeah. it to me. Um, and it's the, it's the strongest thing in my show. I can't wait to do it tonight. It's the strongest thing. It, it's amazing, right? That's an amazing effect in the aspect of so many people say, I can't do it because it's a bizarre effect. And that goes back to the routine that was in there. That was a suggestion because I was giving people the technique, you know, I was giving them a tool to play with, to be create something of their own. It was never meant to be a bizarre routine. It was never meant to be that routine. And that's a discussion that you and I had back at that time that yes, this is so much more. I don't even do that routine. I did that routine for a while to make sure it was a good enough routine to go out. And it's something I talk about in lectures all the time, Chris. And I tell people about being original, originality. I say confabulation. Originally, it was like a dream car, right? You went out, what color the car was, what the make car was, license plate, and the price, or one of those combinations of things. And that was a suggestion for this fantastic tool that could be a prediction that's inside of your wallet. I don't think the original intent of that was that was to be the routine, but everybody was doing dream car. Until David Copperfield comes along, does a dream date. Next thing you see every magician, go, oh, we're going to go on a date. And they're all doing dream date. It's like, how much thought does it take to personalize this with whatever it is you did as a living before your life or something that's going on. And I always say, look, if you're not going to even give that much respect to what it is that we do, get out of magic. You know, it's, you yeah, should buy the effect. That. You should read all those subtleties, but think always, how can I change this? That if I go do a show that somebody else has just done, another mentalist, I'm not doing the exact same effect. And confabulation is one of those. If you come up with a completely different routine, it feels different. It looks different as a result. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, I, I think that's like a lecture like where you, oh, sorry. Yeah, Kristen, you go. Oh, oh I was going to say, no, I just, I, I really feel like you instilled that in me. I mean, we, we had so many late night chats. I mean, that show, the TV show, we were in the trenches. Like that was yeah. grueling, grueling work. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, there were a lot of personalities. And I feel like, you know, you totally took me under your wing and, and honestly, like became a father figure to me. And so oh, I, well, thank I you. have so much love in my heart for you. And I mean, you're my, you've you know, been very influential in my magic life, of, of course, you're my magic dad, but also in my personal life. Yeah, yeah, we, we you know, we, we become so very good we, personal um, friends. Bond through. Oh, wow, there's Johnny. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And this is cute picture. Oh, yeah, Johnny and Michael, that was when Amy did Fool Us. And you and I were seated in the audience yeah. and they used you in like so many episodes. <laughs> J J Jamie, Jamie, Jamie in Swiss right there is well, one of no, your other you magic dads. A lot of magic dads. Jamie is also a magic dad. Well, um, but we're the two magic dads. We have the same birthday. Harrison, can you show that other picture? Sorry? Can you show that other picture of the three? Can you show that other picture of the three of us? Yes, absolutely. There you go. <laughs> Yeah. So Jamie and I have was the same birthday. Say that again, Kristen. Yeah. Sorry. Isn't that crazy? No, you guys had the same birthday, which is crazy. And this was at the amazing meeting. We were doing the $1 million challenge. And I was in charge of like the communication between all of the potential candidates and, you know, our team. And it was just like so much drama. I wrote a whole essay about it. I'll, I'll, I'll link it somewhere. Um, but this is when we were doing a seminar on how to 
uh, test people uh, for psychic abilities and supernatural supernatural abilities. And um, that was just so much fun. I just I love doing that with you. Yeah, Kristen was was a really integral part uh, in the, in those days of the million dollar challenge, where Randy has a million dollars to anybody that can do anything psychic on proper scientific controls, um, and uh, she was an integral part of helping me sort out the claimants, uh, putting protocol together, and taking care of that. Um, I'm still uh, in charge of the million dollar challenge, but it's now I'm actually president of the JREF, but it's more of a uh, a thing where we challenge specific psychics now as opposed to taking claimants, because as Kristen knows, uh, you know, how many of those claimants would never, ever be tested? How many of them, you know, had mental issues? You know, they send you a piece of Lego and say, give me my million dollars, right? You know, things like that. And you, and, and unfortunately, I let you take care of all that. So I didn't have to. <laughs> I know, but I was happy to do it. I was happy to do it. I was learning so much. I mean, that was, uh, that was a really fun time for me. And I, that was kind of at the tail end of, um, when we were wrapping up the TV show and we were about to start doing Magic Jam, which was when Chris had his shoulder surgery, yeah. he had a bunch of musicians fill in for him and Banachek and I were also in that show together. And yep. you did a inverted uh, straitjacket. Were you upside down on the same rig that Banachek got stuck on? No. No. Oh, thank God. No, different rig, <laughs> different rig. Mine was much more secure. <laughs> Her rig, you could get on and off easy. In in uh, in, in a supernaturalist, literally, they would lower me down. Like we had this like three or five second effect we had to each do, and so at the beginning of the show, that would open up, curtain closed, one guy, one person, one person, one person. I would have to get down, get out of that rig, put my other jacket on, run over just as the curtain was opening up to do whatever it is that I was doing, making a spoon bend or oh, I know. making well, a glass shadow in the same. In the same thing, I did um, uh, razor through neck, and I had to wipe off all of the uh, rubber cement and goop in order to put on a wig and hop in the showgirl box. Yep. That's right. That's right. Literally seconds. But my point on that show, it was so well written, the transitions went from one thing to the next. It wasn't just light goes out, hey, Kristen Lambert, hey, Banach. It was nothing like that. It was so well written. And if it wasn't the acts doing it with each other, like I went from doing a prediction with a dog and handing the dog to one of the people on stage and then that person being the dog act and the audience thought they were a person from the audience. That's how my transition went. So there were all these beautiful transitions. It was so well thought out, so well thought out. But again, it was another one that, just really bad timing, unfortunately, for that show. <laughs> it was bad, bad timing. Yeah. I mean, I could go into details, but no well, point. Things, it, 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 uh, bad timing. I, I've been lucky to tour in these sort of mega shows, like, like The Illusionist, for example, is another one. Um, and one of the reasons that I enjoy doing it so much is you get to be in this cast with other magicians and off, so often we're solo acts. And all of a sudden you're with the people who are at the top of their game. And it, it's so fun learning from all these people. Uh, Kristen, what what were some of the things that uh, you picked up from Banachek uh, over the years? OMG, Banny, um, force so many forces. Um, because, <laughs> you know, when we, were, we were doing some, some secret stuff here and there for other projects and whatever. Um, you know, just like forces, forces, forces. And at one point, I was supposed to force something, and the guy and it didn't entirely work. 
it was like my first time doing it and it didn't entirely work. And everyone was so upset. And Banachek um, didn't throw me under the bus. <laughs> About <laughs> just one time. I mean, I did improve. I did learn how to do it. Banachek is a great teacher. I'm, of course, PK, which is one of my like main things. I, I, I can't get enough of it. Um, and I do have an original take on it now. It is not what he taught me slash what was written <laughs> and um, Good. a great center tear and all kinds of memorization techniques. Um, just like generally being the most courteous and generous and thoughtful oh. person. I mean, I cannot say enough superb superlative hyperbole about Banachek. I mean, he like will take so much time to help you with anything you need, anyone, anywhere, anytime. He is the most generous man in magic. I feel I feel the same about you, but woman, not man. I feel the same about you. So, you know, it's interesting because she mentioned forces. We were creating and making our own spend pads before spend pads were spend pads back in the day. <laughs> and and now I kick myself. I go, I wish I was a better business person because he has made so much money off of those, right? <laughs> Uh, I'm sure Scott Wells is kicking himself too. He's been watching it in the comments. And I know you you, you, you guys have released stuff together. Um, but uh, Kristen, before we let you go, um, is, we, we all know Banachek is an incredible thinker. He's an incredible person. Um, but were there any funny backstage antics or stories that you could tell us about? Um, Do not mention no. the shower. <laughs> oh no, now that's all I want to know about. The shower and whipped cream on the, on the tour bus. What? What's actually, happening? Yeah, no, we're not going there. But <laughs> you can, because nobody else is stepping up to the plate. I don't care. No, it doesn't matter to me. Uh, no, no, no. But what I will say is that um, Banny does get a little, like when he's memorizing information and stuff, like, like he does get a little stressy. So he will, he gets so focused and just like so intense that you like, everyone's just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We got to back off and like give Banny check his space because like he's having a fucking moment. <laughs> um, and, uh, so that, that's just kind of funny. I like to, I like to watch you memorize and have you go over stuff over and over and coming up with your mnemonics. And yeah. It's like the goofiest stuff, but that's what works. But, uh, yeah. always well, I'm dyslexic, so it's even more difficult for me. So if I have to memorize things, I've got to use all these techniques and I got to just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And everybody yeah. else is like, oh yeah, but it's, it, I've, I've got to work twice as hard for that. So it's like, just give me my space, leave me alone, don't talk to me, and I'll be good once this is all over with. You know? The bright yeah. side of his dyslexia, though, is when he was hanging upside down, it looked right side up to him. Ah. <laughs> no, it didn't. <laughs> if only, though. <laughs> no, if only, because every night so, I, mean, I felt that was going to be the night it was going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Kristen, yeah. go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, um, we, when we were doing, um, Chris's uh, TV show, it was when we, when Chris was doing a million dollar thing, um, in a suitcase and, um, we had to cut out a million dollars worth of hundreds. <laughs> and for some reason we didn't have a paper cutter. So it was you and I sitting there. It was like 11 PM. You and I sitting there cutting out all of these hundreds and it was just like one of those like what this is so weird like who would be, like so much of that show was so surreal and if you say like yeah you know um i i came dressed to be on camera i was in my little dress in my six inch heels and now i'm underneath the table 
in a food court in a mall pulling a string, you know, and um, it just, you never knew what was going to happen and what you was going to get thrown at you. And it was just such a great journey to be on with you. I mean, I learned so much and like, I just, so much stuff where you tell people and they're like, that's not real. That could not have happened. And you're like, oh, oh no. See? Yeah. <laughs> You reminded me. You reminded me that making those million dollar bills with a suitcase full of a million dollars. So I had a Xerox machine that could actually make copies of hundreds, right? But I'm only doing one side. I'm not doing both sides, but I'm doing one side, a few of both sides for the top layer. And I'm doing this, and I'm going, okay, we're going to destroy these afterwards. You know, we're not doing like we're not going to use it for anything else. And I remember Chris comes walking through, literally through the warehouse with somebody. Oh yeah, Banachek's over there printing up money. I'm like, <laughs> no, don't say that. They're all gone. Oh my gosh, yeah. uh, uh, this is amazing, uh, Kristen. I know you have a show to get back to, um, and also uh, you have the 10 second yeah. horror stories. Is that is that the correct title? Yes, yes. They're amazing. 10 second horror stories. Thank you, yeah. thank you. I'm doing those on Instagram. Um, I post. Yeah, at Kristen Lambert, you can check out all my horror stories. Um, they're really fun and kind of creepy. If you want a little uh, good bedtime thought, check it out. And uh, right now, I'm at Mystique Dining, Utah. So if you are in the Salt Lake City area, come see a show. A real live in-person show I hope with real people. A real live in-person show. Banachek, I want to book you. We were just talking about you the other night. Hit, yeah, hit me up. I, I definitely would be interested. So especially right now is a good time. Yeah. <laughs> Kristen, thank you so, so much for joining us. It's so good to see you. Great to see you too. Happy, happy band check day, everybody. <laughs> oh, 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 I miss you. I miss you. <laughs> Kristen Lambert, everybody. Uh, she's amazing. Um, we are coming up upon the end of the show. This is a, a super size show. Um, if you have a last question and you really want to get it in under the wire, uh, send it in. I'll ask uh, one more question to give you the time to do that. Uh, otherwise, we'll wrap this thing up. Um, one of the things um, I'd love to ask you about, because um, you you have incorporated magic into your act, obviously uh, Buried Alive. I think you were one of the first people to do it in the way that you did. Uh, the Bullet Catch, which you then um, gave to Penn & Teller. Um, there, there are mentalists who don't want to be, a, you know, they we're not magicians. Um, they're not, they don't consider what they do magic. Where do you stand on that issue of, of mentalism and versus magic? Well, what we do is magic is mentalism, but I like to be more of a purist when I'm actually performing within the context of performance, right? Not outside of that context. In the beginning, the end, the middle, I remind people. Um, for me, I don't want to add the magic unless I think, I, you know, years ago something happened. Uh, I, I used to give myself these little exercises. And one of the exercises was how can I make a magic prop work as a mentalism, pure mentalism effect? And one of, what could be more uh, magical than like a coin slider, right? With all the dragons and everything on it. And it's the one where you put the quarter in and then you push it in, you open it up and it's disappeared, right? right. So <laughs> um, a perfect example of turning that into a mentalism effect is, hey, you have like 10 quarters right there with different dates on them. You turn them all over, they mix them up. They take one without looking at it, they put it in it, they close it. They take all the others, put them in their pocket. You concentrate and you tell them or you predict it what the date is on that coin, 
right? And and the way to do it is, of course, you're just putting a coin in the other one instead of making an advantage and making a switch. And if you take uh, Darren Brown, when he did, um, he did a beautiful thing with a dollhouse illusion where you had one dollhouse and the other dollhouse was a prediction. And somebody set up all the dollhouse with the little items and everything else. And you open the other one, and there it is all rearranged, right? What would be more <laughs> magical than, than a dollhouse? And yet he made it seem like it was a real thing, right? It was brilliant. It was clever. It was smart. So I used to think that um, mental magic was props because I don't do mental magic, right? I tend to do more mentalism. There's a difference right there, fine line. Um, uh, but I think more and more it's the performer themselves. And I've come to the conclusion as well that there's nothing wrong with mental magic. There's nothing wrong with mixing the two. I don't think personally, I wouldn't do it in my show. I don't um, because we're entertainers and our job is to entertain people. Our job is to take people on a journey, uh, take them away from their everyday life. Let them forget about all those things that are going on that they want to forget about and just bring a smile to their face and get them thinking, giving them a bit of wonder. So I don't have a problem with that. Now, when you say I did magic, with mentalism really in my early days it was more like escapes and hardcore things like that and escapes kind of feel like they're real even if they're not right mentalism kind of feels like it's real even if it's not right um the bullet catch is seems like a very dangerous thing even if it's not and there's always an x factor with any of those dangerous things right um so to me i embraced those kind of things in my performances back in the early days but i would get known as a daredevil when it was hard to sell the daredevil aspects. So I went more just with a pure metalism and came back to that, really. I don't have a problem with other people doing it if they do it well. Uh, you know, it's a, a, a trick should look like it's not a trick, even if we have that agreement with the audience that we're fooling those. But they need to have that agreement. You know, I, a lot of people have said to me, hey, you wouldn't stop on stage and say in a play and say, hey, I'm not really Macbeth. You know, and that's a really, really bad. That's a bad analogy, right? It's a really bad one, and it's a bad one because in the context of play, you know, it's a play. But going back to something I said, when I come on stage, they don't know the difference. It's what I tell them. And if there's a brain surgeon that comes on stage, starts showing slides and speaking, after a while, even though he's on the stage where a magician performed yesterday, you realize he's a real brain surgeon very quickly, right? And so it's my job to remind those people in that middle area that I talked about earlier that hey. I'm a magician. I'm not. I'm not a man. You know. I'm not a, a psychic. That that is what right. I do. It's my job to give it back to them. Um, but going back to the whole magic thing, I don't have a problem with other people doing it. I know a lot of mentalists feel like it cheapens magic, but you know, when you start looking at guys that do it really, really well, that line is completely blurred. That magic trick feels like it's a real thing. Yeah, I always said the people the mentalists who said they weren't magicians are like pitcher saying they're not baseball players. You're, you're a specific yeah. kind, but you're all, yeah. we're all on the same team. <laughs> you're a subcategory of magic is what you are. You know, whether you like it or not, sorry, but you are, you are not going to get a magazine that only has stuff about psychic stuff in it. If you say you're a mentalist and you're part of any mentalism group or any magic and mentalism convention out there, it's going to be tricks. That's what it's going to be that you're going to yeah. be learning. And speaking of tricks, uh, one of the questions that came in multiple times, he very much wants this question, is he just asked, do you still perform psychokinetic time? I remember when you taught it to me back in 1990 at a magician's convention in Daytona Beach, Florida. So Clark Aldridge, I knew Clark, I met him um, at a convention, uh, one of the conventions where magicians had seen for the first time me doing my Russian knives. I'd been doing it long before that, but it was one where I actually did it at a magic convention. 
And uh, Clark was there, a very young kid, just getting into magic at the time. And I taught him psychokinetic time. But I taught him all the little subtleties and everything else. And because he was young, he didn't understand how important those subtleties were. So then I saw him doing it later. And it was, sorry, Clark, but he was doing it horrendously. But he was doing it. <laughs> oh. like, it was so bad, like, right? And that's really what pushed me to write the book, Psychokinetic Time so that all those subtleties would be in there. And he would also have that to understand and go over all those subtleties, right? And um, so that's really how Psych Psychonetic Time got written. And it was one the first booklet that I really wrote, uh, other than Pre-Thoughts, which I'd written, done a sort of a lecture thing. Um, but Psychonetic Time and Psych as uh, PK Touches were the first two things that I ever really wrote. And it got written really because of Clark doing it poorly at the time. And now I'm sure he does an incredible job because he's still doing it. So I'm getting away with it. And I've seen him do it since then, you know. And I have discussed this story back in the day. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think too that uh, you know, I remember when I was doing psychokinetic touches as a kid, uh, and somebody had shown me at Magic Camp, and when I finally got my hands on the the pamphlet, I was like, oh my god, there's so much more in there. So if you are doing the trick, or if you're thinking about doing the trick, you absolutely must buy. Bad. You should be supporting the creators of all your effects at, to begin with. But Which man, one? Time, the stuff time that he puts out is incredible. Time or touches? Who are you talking about? Are you personally talking about? Oh, I'm talking about PK touches. For me, was, oh, yeah. uh, okay, was PK. I ended up being a psych major in college in part because of tricks like that, where I realized how uh, important the psychology was to, to all of this stuff. PK time is the one that I taught Clark was with a watch, yeah. you know, and that came about because Randy was exposing Yuri Geller um, doing it and saying, you're pulling out the stem. And I was like, okay, so I want a moment in there where I say, make sure I don't pull out the stem, even though that's exactly what I just did. <laughs> um, and I wanted it so that they could name any number and the hands would move that after I've already placed it in their hand. And David Blaine opened his second TV special with that effect, actually with a truck driver. So it, it's that good. And the guy, it was very slow. It was a sleeper booklet that didn't sell, couldn't sell any of them. And it wasn't until Blaine did that. And it wasn't until uh, Seth Kramer and other people said, it's the highlight of the trade show work. And other people started saying that other guys started to do that. So, and touches, I've got and all the stuff I need now for writing a very big book on touches is just getting it out there. So I held back so many subtleties for so many years on that. And other people are starting to hit on some of those subtleties. So I need to make sure they get out there. Yeah, I think that answers the question. Is there a new books, book in the works? Look for a potential uh, PK Touches book, uh, hopefully soon. Yeah, that, and uh, I'm probably going to be working on a, I am sort of been working through the years on a, uh, a fourth edition of Psychological Subtleties. That is not out yet, um, but it uh, it will be at some point. The, both those books will be out. I have been so busy that I even had to, to take down my, <laughs> I had to take down my Patreon page because I just couldn't, I didn't feel like I was able to give everybody what I really wanted to give them and the worth I wanted to give them. So I had to take it down and we've been writing a brand new virtual show, which I've done a few times. I have the top guys in the business uh, that have done the graphics. The graphics are like, unlike anything that's in any other virtual show that's out there. Um, I am so proud of my virtual show and hopefully uh, you guys will get to see it. I've been doing it at some colleges and places like that. Um, we're going about to enter the corporate arena because the, the tape on that is done and that's going to blow people away. Um, and I'm just, I just, it's, 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 I feel like the new virtual show is my finest achievement so far. That's amazing. And you, I remember, uh, reading through your biography, uh, the one of the, the first product I think you actually released was uh, how to do magic on the radio, which feels apropos yeah. at the moment now. 
So Scott, um, who we mentioned there, Scott Wells, um, and this is kind of how we got started, really. Scott came to me and said, hey, Banachek, um, you've done a lot of radio through the years when doing comedy clubs and traveling and that. He says, uh, you know, can you sit down? Can I sit down with you? I'd like to record a conversation with you. And I think he came over and we sat for five, six, seven hours or something like that. It was a long time just talking about radio. He went off. He wanted to do it because he was going back to a high school reunion, if I remember correctly. And um, uh, he went off and he did it. And it was such a success. He says, you know what? We need to do something with this. I'm going to come over and I'm going to interview you. And uh, we, it can't be that long. But uh, we're going to do an interview and I'm going to put the questions down. I'm not going to tell you what they are ahead of time. And you're just going to talk and we're going to do we're going to do this. So we did. And originally it was a cassette that came out. Um, and uh, yeah, that was the very first thing that I ever, ever put out. And it all came as a result of, of Scott Wells uh, wanting to me to actually do that. Later, we put it on a CD. Um, uh, the only thing I hate about it is when... There's a point in there where I talk about taping yourself so you don't pick up bad habits like um, 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 and things like that. And all the way through that, because he's asking me these questions, I'm having to think about them and I'm using those time stallers. Um, um, and I listen <laughs> back to it now and I am horrified by that. But but the stuff is still relevant. It's relevant to a point. There is a lot of new stuff because like if you do like Joe Rogan's podcast, which I've done, uh, you know, there's also cameras in the room. You now do radio shows. There's cameras in the room. There's and actually that TV shows. <laughs> that changes a lot of the double speak that you can do and, and also your angles and things like that. So you have to be well aware of those things. I actually had an issue with that at Joe Rogan's because I wasn't aware that Joe's podcast was also a YouTube podcast. I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> My fault That's for not doing it. I now know. Yeah. Yeah, this was video the whole time. I hope that was clear. Oh, really? Well, I didn't do a trick, so we're good. <laughs> and I don't um, think I said anything wrong. Or could get no, it's great. Right. And just to make sure that this this interview does not become a 3D, three CD set of over two and a half hours, I'll ask you the final question. Uh, it's the final question I ask everybody on who books that, which is uh, that we have young magicians who are, are watching this show, young entertainers. Uh, what advice would you give to these performers um, as they start out in their careers. Uh, you talking about all magic or just mentalism? Uh, it's up to you. Uh, you can do it broadly as magic, or if you want to focus on mentalism, that's fine as well. So in mentalism, I, I would say study outside of the areas of the regular, the books and things like that. Um, I got started because I stayed away from mentalists for many years, and that's how I was ended up being a lot, really original with a lot of my effects and stuff. But I would study the evangelists. If you see me a lot of times, I'm on stage, I'm all over that stage. Some performers don't like that. The Banachek, you move too much. But I do have moments where I stand still in my performance. But I get that from watching the evangelists because they get the highs, the lows. They're great at faking all that stuff and getting that emotion out of people because they're the guys that are trying to get the money from the people, right? So watch those kind of people and you can learn a lot outside of that. The stuff that I read uh, was the stuff that uh, psychics did and I wanted to be able to duplicate that. I didn't want to duplicate the stuff that mentalists did. I wanted to duplicate the stuff the psychics did because that would feel more real, right? And I didn't even know there was, a, as I said, an area of mentalism. Overall, when it comes to magic, I would say, listen to the old guys, the really old guys that come to your, to your meetings and everything else. They've been around it all. They've seen it all. Don't take it for granted because they will hand you little gems 
um, that might sound like nothing, might sound irrelevant today, but if you're smart, you will take those little gems and you will take them and you will turn them into something that's relevant. Just those little things. I remember a lot of things that a lot of old timers had told me that other guys just weren't listening. It's an old timer just telling stories. I didn't want to listen to them. Give them the time. Give them the time. Make them feel important, you know, and not just because you're getting something from them, but because they've also earned that as well. So don't take those people for granted just because you want to be young, cool, and hip. You know, hang around those old timers because they will give you so much more than the young guys that you're hanging out with. You know, when you were the young guys, you're preaching to the choir. Yeah, it's great to be able to bounce ideas off your friends, but listen to the old timers. You don't have to agree with all of it, but listen to it. Yeah, and, and that is fantastic advice. But speaking of old timers and Scott Wells, as an extra bonus surprise, something I organized while you were telling that, we got Scott Wells to say a very quick hello. <laughs> say hello to Banachek. Hello, Banachek. That's not that's not Scott. That's Santa. Oh, that's right. It's Summer Santa. <laughs> Merry Christmas, my young man. <laughs> are you, are you wait? Are you doing virtual Santa shows? Because that is a thing now. You know that, right? <laughs> I know. Steve Daly, I think, is doing that. Yeah, <laughs> you could, Scott, you could do it with that look. This is well, a, a I've been out. I thank you. I, I think I've been actually exercising every day, so I really don't come out of this quarantine looking like Santa Claus, as far yeah. as my girth. <laughs> well, if that it doesn't work out, you can always read Old Man in the Sea virtually. I think that'll well, work as well. When I was in Cuba for Magic Cuba, there were a bunch of people taking pictures of me because they thought I looked so much like Hemingway. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> well, Scott, we are at the end of the program, but do you have one quick thing to say about Banachek? I I'd love to get, uh, you'll we'll give you the final word. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, yeah, we were to working together to Magic Island. He was the house medalist. I was a house close-up magician many years ago. Whenever that we were, uh, I was telling him I was going to my high school reunion and let's get together. You know, I wanted to do a radio thing and everything he said was exactly right. And we did set down. And then later I said, I think there's something that other people would like to hear too. So we ended up putting that together. I scripted out some questions and then we actually made a better quality of that, put it on a, a disc or rather on a uh, cassette tapes. And then Took it to, uh, actually, it's kind of funny because I took it to Joe Stevens and I said, would you be interested? And he said, nah, mentalism's not hot. And he said, nobody knows who Steve Shaw is. And so I said, okay. So uh, anyhow, I went with somebody else and we took off from there. But uh, yeah, anyhow, that we've been best friends since 87, been in business partners and best friends. And uh, it's just always good to uh, to see you, my friend. It's always good to see you too. Really good to see yeah, you. Thank you so much for, for, for dropping in. If you are watching the show and you are in the comments, you too could end up uh, on the show in, in the last minute. Um, so a huge thanks to Scott Wells for being willing to uh, play with us a little bit and jump on for a quick hello. Harrison, ask Scott yep. for a copy, even not now, just so you have it, of sure. me in a Santa Claus outfit with a bag with all my products in it. Oh, yeah. I do, um, have, yeah. I do have a photo. It's not exactly that, but you. this is as close as I can get to a Christmas Banachek photo. <laughs> oh, that is me as an elf? with Bro Gilbert as an elf and Johnny Thompson as a reindeer. We were nice. on the set of uh, Chris Angel's Mind Freak and we were at a school where the kids were underprivileged and we open up the back of a truck, we close it, and then we appear along with all the presents. There you go. If only Scott was there, you would have a Santa to go with it. <laughs> yeah, well, Chris was the Santa in that one. And the Santa <laughs> suit I wore, by the way, by the way, the Santa suit I wore for that Photoshop belonged to Scott. 
Amazing. Oh, there you go. We full circle. Scott, thank you so much for popping in. We really appreciate it. Um, it so good to see you, man. Uh, and of course, uh, Banachek, a huge, huge thank you. Uh, I think we, we might not have hit the three CD limit, but we've definitely done at least two CDs worth. Uh, anybody who was born uh, after 1995 has no idea what either of us are talking about. Um, but no. Banachek, thank you so much uh, for joining. Stay safe, stay well, and I hope uh, our, our paths cross again soon. I, I do too, Harrison. So many more stories in other places. But you know what? This has been fun. Thank you very much. And thank you. You know what? I can't believe you've done now 31 of these and you do this much research and get all those guests on for people. Truly, truly amazing. You need to be applauded for what you're doing because you're not taking it lightly. You are putting a lot of time and energy into this. And, you know, congratulations. Fantastic job, my friend. Uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I am exhausted, uh, <laughs> but it is as as I've told you, it, it is I, the people on the show are people I I, I respect and admire a ton, and uh, being able to do the research into people's life stories is just so exciting. And finding out information I didn't know before, and uh, you know, it's so great. And with this episode, you know, uh, Bob and Richard, uh, Kristen and Scott, at the last minute, all people who love you tremendously, and uh, it's it's well deserved. Same, same. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. Take care, my friend. Bye. Take care. Bye, everybody. Banajek, everybody. That wraps episode 31. A huge thanks to Scott Wells last minute. We had Richard Turner. We have Bob Arno. We had Kristen Lambert. Uh, and of course, Banachek, who you can follow on his website. It's Banachek.com. That's pretty easy. Uh, he's a podcast as well. Banachek'sBrain.com. You can check that out. Bob Arno's website is BobArno.com. Richard Turner is RichardTurner52.com. And on Instagram, you can catch Kristen Lambert at K-R-Y-S-T-Y-N. Lambert with a B. She has great 10-second uh, horror stories and great content, so check that out. You can, of course, follow me at Harrison Comedy. And because this is presented by the International Brotherhood of Magicians, if you're not already a member, why aren't you a member? It's a fantastic organization. It's responsible for great content like this. So go to magician.org slash join dash the dash IBM slash join. You can sign up. You can renew your membership. We're here every Wednesday at 7 p.m. on the East Coast. We are taking a week off next week, but we're coming back the week following the last week in October with Paul Keeve. He is an incredible person. He's the magician uh, behind the special effects on Broadway and the West End, Harry Potter, Matilda, Ghost, uh, Harry Potter the movie, uh, Mickey Mouse. He did a show for, for Disneyland. It, it's so exciting. We're, it's going to be a great episode, so make sure you tune in. Uh, thank you so much for supporting. Uh, and thank you, Steve, Martin, uh, Clark, uh, Jordan, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. Can't do this show without you. Make sure you download this podcast. Leave it a five-star review if you can. That's all at whobooksthat.com. This has been episode 31, Banachek of Who Books That with Harrison Greenbaum. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really, really appreciate it. You guys are the best. And here is our theme song, which I'm definitely not just singing while the animation plays. Who books that with Harrison Greenbaum? I'm singing a theme song. Who books that with Harrison Greenbaum? Presented by the IBM. Presented by the IBM. That's International Brotherhood of Magicians. <laughs>